סיור, ואם אתה פוגש מטרות, יש אישור לתקוף אותם, האם זה To jump us right into the action here, I want to play you some audio. Now, it doesn't sound like much. It's fuzzy, there's people talking in Hebrew, there's gunfire. But what you are hearing is stunning. I'm not kidding. This is one of the most important events in Jewish history. It's one of those hinge moments when history moves from a before to an after. When to understand what comes next, we need to remember this moment. Here's what we're hearing. The date is June 7, 1967, the third day of what would come to be known as the Six-Day War. We have a unit of Israeli troops racing through Jerusalem's old city on their way to capture the Temple Mount, Judaism's holiest place. It's where the gold dome of the rock stands today on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Islam's third holiest site. The last time the Jews had the Temple Mount in their hands was 2,000 years ago under the Romans. Everyone is aware of the significance of this moment. The commander of the brigade is named Maragur, and he's working the radios to his company commanders. He says, quote, Surely we're going to go into the old city of Jerusalem that all generations have dreamed about, end quote. We're also hearing the voice of a journalist named Yossi Rosen, who was embedded with the troops. He's reporting shooting from all directions, sniper fire. We hear gunfire and more commands. Yossi Rosen reports, quote, we're getting further and further into the city, end quote. More gunfire. And then, quite suddenly, quite calmly, the brigade commander, Maragur, reports back to headquarters the famous words, Harhabait biadenu. Har Habait Biadenu. The Temple Mount is in our hands. I repeat, the Temple Mount is in our hands. It was almost beyond comprehension. And indeed, starting that moment and continuing for years, many would struggle to reconcile what seemed to be a human action with the divine promise. The prophecies stretching back millennia that foretold a story of redemption in which the Jewish people would reclaim their sacred land of which the Temple Mount, site of the ancient temple long since gone, was the center. This wasn't just a military victory, but a spiritual one, and a secular one, and a national one. It was the history of the Jewish people, the struggles of the state of Israel, the prayers of Jews for two millennia, all wrapped up in a singular moment of triumph that connected Jewish military power with historic Jewish land, that connected Jewish religious yearning with Jewish pride, that replaced the fear of doom with a triumphant relief of victory. Power and land and God and pride and sacrifice and victory, these are all themes that will stay with Israel, some quite controversially, up till today. In the moments after Har Habayit Be'adenu, the Temple Mount is in our hands, the reporter Yossi Rosen approached the Western Wall. I read the I 
He says, quote, I'm walking right now down the steps towards the Western Wall. I am not a religious man. I have never been. This is the Western Wall, and I'm touching the stones of the Western Wall, end quote. And then the soldiers began to pray. The soldiers recite the Shehechianu, the prayer of gratitude. Quote, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sustained us and kept us and has brought us to this day. End quote. And then the chief rabbi of the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, Shlomo Gorin, recites a prayer. Blessed are you who comforts Zion and builds Jerusalem. And the soldiers respond, Amen. And then, there at the Western Wall, in Jewish hands after all these centuries, they all sing Hatikva, Israel's national anthem. Rabbi Gorin blows the shofar, the ancient Jewish call to listen that first came down from Mount Sinai to the Israelites waiting to be turned into a nation. So Israel now has Jerusalem, and in a couple more days we'll have most of what was once the historic Jewish homeland, along with about a million Palestinian Arabs. How the war affects Israel will be the subject of our season. We're looking at a 10-year span of enormous consequence, 1967 to 1977. There will be three wars, waves of terrorism, terrible losses and exceptional victories, a huge political realignment, social upheaval, and the occupation. Israel's military control over Palestinians on the land that came under its rule in the short Six-Day War of 1967. For the first time in history, the Jewish people found themselves with power over others and control over nearly the entire historic land of Israel. Every day today, Israel and the Palestinians live with the impact of that week in June. So we're going to pick up where things left off in my previous season on Israel, which was season four, which went through Israeli history from 1948 to 1967. Your best bet at a quick refresh are the last couple of episodes, numbers 102 and 103, which detail the complex story that led up to the Six-Day War. This is an action-packed season, so hang on tight. This is the first episode for season seven, episode number 144, Israeli history from 1967 to 1977. 
I'm your host, Jason Harris. It's great to be back, and welcome everyone to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. All right, back at it. So we know that Israel is going to end up capturing Jerusalem in the Six-Day War. Har Habayit Be'adenu, the Temple Mount, is in our hands, becomes one of the most famous phrases in Israeli history. But let's go back a few weeks to another phrase, not as well known, but that turned out to be just as impactful, and that also sets us up for understanding the rest of this season. It's Israel's Independence Day, May 15th, 1967, three weeks before the Six-Day War. Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kuk was the head of a prominent Jerusalem yeshiva, a religious school. Zvi Yehuda Kuk was an influential rabbi from a renowned family. His father had been the chief rabbi of Palestine before the establishment of Israel in 1948. The father-son Kuk rabbis were the pioneers of what we call religious Zionism a religious angle on what was otherwise the secular Zionist movement that was concerned with things like politics, economics, socialism. Zionist leaders had historically had little patience for the intricacies of Jewish law and the rulings of rabbis. They weren't looking to build a theocratic state. And the skepticism was mutual. Religious Jews held that only God had the power to redeem the Jewish people through their collective return to their ancestral homeland. This was the work of the Messiah, not sinful politicians. So many religious Jews rejected a relationship with the Zionist movement and then kept as much distance as they could from the official doings of the state of Israel. But the Cook rabbis took a different view. They united Jewish theology with secular Zionism. They believed that God was working through the secular Zionists, who, whether they wanted to or not, were agents in the divine plan. The establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 may have been a political event, but it was also the beginning of the Age of Redemption. It was the first step in the process of bringing forward the Messianic era. God wasn't rejecting Zionism, but using it. The state wasn't an abomination, but a sign of divine favor. Instead of rejecting the state, Cook and their followers took part in civic life, serving in the army and getting involved in politics. But for Cook and the religious Zionists, the state of Israel wasn't complete, and therefore the process of redemption could not be fulfilled. Israel was established on only part of the historic Jewish homeland. The rest was still under the control of the Arabs, who prohibited the Jews from living there. And not just any old bits of land, but the crucial parts, the tombs of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron, the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, the ancient capital city of Shechem, and the list goes on. Judaism's holiest places lay outside the boundaries of modern Israel. Where others referred to the West Bank, religious Jews referred to Judea and Samaria, the biblical names for the ancient Jewish kingdoms there. Religious Zionists argued that the redemption could not be completed until the Jews can settle on every bit of their original homeland. And yet, Zvi Yehuda Kuk lamented that for the 19 years of Israel's existence, the land was divided and there was no effort to get it back. And so on this 19th Independence Day in May of 1967, Rabbi Cook famously asked, quote, Where is our Hebron? Have we forgotten her? Where is our Shechem, our Jericho? Where? 
All that lies beyond the Jordan, each and every clod of earth, every region, hill, valley, every plot of land that is part of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, have we the right to give up even one grain of the land of God? End quote. This country is, he insisted, what was envisioned by the ancient Hebrew prophets, but it has not yet attained perfection. The prophecies hold that with the return of the people of Israel to their land, there will come about the primacy of the teachings of Torah, the wholeness of the people, and the uplifting of all that is sacred. But first, he said, the first step is the settlement of the people of Israel on their own land, a land that is now presently divided and which caused him great anguish. Rabbi Cook's lamentation in his vision might have remained on the fringes, confined to a relatively small corner of the religious end of Zionism. But in a matter of weeks, Israel would suddenly and unexpectedly have the ability to act on these notions. That the historic land of Israel is indivisible, that Jewish settlement on that land is a requirement for the people's redemption, that the political entity of the state of Israel has no moral right to give up any land in Jewish hands. In the meantime, as Rabbi Cook gave his speech, the secular world was closing in fast. Israel had come a long way in the 19 years since its precarious establishment in 1948. Then too, a war had been fought for its very existence, which Israel won at great sacrifice. Israel had faced tremendous hardships and challenges in the 1950s and 60s, a constant influx of new, mostly impoverished Jewish refugees who needed to be cared for and integrated, struggles to build and find housing, the enduring trauma of the Holocaust, an economic recession in 1966 was still hurting people who couldn't find work. In the mid-1960s, there was a sharp decrease in new immigrants, while at the same time a flow of people leaving for better prospects elsewhere. And there were wide social divisions. The Ashkenazi Jews of European descent looked down on their Sephardic and Mizrahi brethren from the Middle East and North Africa, a fact reflected in national politics and policy. About 300,000 Israeli Arabs were living amidst 2.5 million Jews, also struggling with decent housing, quality health care, and education, and economic opportunity. And of course, there was the hostile, often deadly relationship with the neighborhood. Those 2.5 million Jews live next to 127 million Arabs. But still, by 1967, Israel was a much more prosperous, united, and self-confident nation, with the incredible achievements of Zionism having borne fruit. The revival of the Hebrew language and culture, new cities like Tel Aviv, phenomenal archaeological finds revealing thousands of years of Jewish history, scientific discoveries that helped the world, an army that had proven successful against determined enemies, and perhaps most incredibly, the creation of the only democracy in the Middle East, from a population with almost no experience having previously lived in democratic countries. It was all a miracle. But by mid-May of 1967, there was great fear that it would all come undone. On the same day that Rabbi Cook gave his speech about the forgotten land of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin was receiving ever more worrisome notices. Egypt's army was rapidly mobilizing and heading for Israel. 
Yitzhak Rabin was then 45 years old, one of Israel's most experienced warriors and celebrated military leaders. He was serving as the Israel Defense Forces Chief of Staff, the highest-ranking officer. Not quite sure what to make of Egypt's mobilization, Rabin in his memoir remembered thinking, quote, what then is going on, end quote. Well, a lot was going on. The story leading up to the Six-Day War in June of 1967 is its own entire podcast season. It's a convoluted tale of Arab unity and rivalry, of the Cold War struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union, of bravado and provocation and miscalculation. I covered a lot of this in the last couple episodes of season four, 102 and 103. Now, you know how much I hate to leave out the nuances and details that provide so much context, but let's just set the broad scene here. Israel was surrounded by hostile neighbors, and lately tensions had been ramping up, especially with the big three, Egypt in the south, Syria in the north, and Jordan in the east. Each conflict had its own particularities, but each also connected to the other. With Syria, Israel had been engaged in months of sporadic fighting over water access in the north, in and around an area called the Golan Heights, while Syria constantly fired on Israeli villages in the valley down below. Egged on by the Soviet Union, Syria ramped up its aggression and looked to Egypt for support. Egypt was led by President Gamal Abdel Nasser, a former army officer who had seized power in the 1950s. He had been humiliated by Israel, France, and Britain in the 1956 Sinai campaign and never got over it. Now he was bogged down in a nasty war in Yemen, the economy was in shambles, and he was fast losing political credibility. He reached for the cliché Arab playbook. Distract everyone from your lousy rule by promising to liberate the Palestinians and destroy Israel. And then there was King Hussein of Jordan, young, charismatic, the most moderate of the Arab leaders. Although Israel and Jordan had engaged in some bloody fighting over the years, they had a secret relationship behind the scenes. Hussein had no love for the Palestinians and hated President Nasser, and was also holding an ace card. Jordan had been occupying the West Bank and East Jerusalem, including the Old City and the Temple Mount, since the 1948 war. He wasn't looking to risk that with another war. Still, peer pressure is what it is, and if the Arab states were demonizing Israel, then Hussein couldn't be the odd one left out. Now, President Nasser of Egypt didn't really want war either, but at some point you set expectations so high that it becomes impossible to back down. He matched his bellicose rhetoric with actually moving his army into place just a few miles from Israel's border. That's when Yitzhak Rabin got concerned, but not panicked. But things were about to get worse. On May 16th, President Nasser of Egypt ordered that the United Nations peacekeeping troops, stationed in between Egypt and Israel, leave. The purpose was theatrical. He didn't think they actually would, since that would leave the space wide open for an Egyptian attack on Israel. Exactly the thing the UN was there to prevent, and Nasser knew it. But incredibly, the UN did pull out, which Israel has never forgiven the organization for. And then on May 22nd, Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran, a narrow waterway linking the Red Sea with Israel's southern port city, Eilat. This was an economic blockade that, for Israel, was a red line. So Israel now knew that war was coming, but it was a question of when and how. What followed was three weeks known as Hamtana, the waiting period. 
Nasser declared, quote, Our basic objective will be to destroy Israel, end quote. The Palestine Liberation Organization, PLO, promised that, quote, No Jews whatsoever will survive, end quote. The Arab leaders all tried to out-rhetoric each other in aggression, and all agreed that this would be the final battle. Israel mobilized its entire reserves, a couple hundred thousand civilians who otherwise worked as the nation's bankers and taxi drivers and waiters and teachers and blue-collar workers. The economy tanked. Israel was under siege and its political position was precarious. After the 1956 Sinai campaign, the West had promised to uphold Israel's security in the event of another Arab attack. But now they all backed out, even the United States where President Lyndon Johnson was preoccupied with Vietnam and didn't want to get involved in a war in the Middle East. Although normally a great friend of Israel, he famously told Israel not to attack first. Quote, Israel will not be alone unless it decides to go alone. End quote. But by sitting and waiting, Israel's government was losing the support of its own people. Yitzhak Rabin had already had a nervous breakdown by that point. The Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, had given a disastrous, fumbling radio speech that left everyone feeling even worse. Terror gripped the nation. As May turned to June, Israel's situation was desperate, surrounded on all sides by the armies of Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and a half dozen other Arab countries sending supporting units and material. They could attack at any moment. Combined, the Arab armies heavily outgunned Israel. 2,500 tanks to Israel's 800, 900 airplanes to Israel's 200-plus, and close to half a million soldiers, with Israel fielding only about half that. Yitzhak Rabin and the military leadership were confident that Israel would win, but predicted that the casualties would be enormous. Finally, the United States was recognizing that war was coming and signaled that Israel would have free reign to act. Israel sent a message to King Hussein of Jordan, if you don't attack us, we won't attack you. Israel's military leadership knew that their best move was a preemptive attack to surprise the Arabs. But of course, that would ignite a war. The question was whether Israel was ready. By June 4th, all the pieces were in place. Prime Minister Levi Eshkol had formed a last-minute unity government, Israel's first ever. A unity government combines the party in power with its opposition to present a unified front to the nation. The Israeli cabinet debated for seven hours what to do. With the Arabs promising a war of annihilation and the Holocaust a mere 22 years in the past, Israel was determined not to repeat that horror. By the end of the day, the order came. Attack. It was a gamble on its continued existence, on a war that had to be won at all costs. Just to survive would be enough. But no one predicted the extraordinary, history-changing victory that was just days away. So that's next time. So great to be back. As always, my website is jewanono.com and my email is jewanonopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone sticking with me through these long hiatuses between the seasons, and most especially my incredibly generous donors who can see their name in lights, so to speak, on my website. Talk to you all next time. Lehitra out. See you later.